morning. I recently received an email from an old congregant of mine. She, uh, she, she had she'd gone to a study of some sort, a Bible study, that was looking at the Old Testament festivals. And I was going through and kind of giving a description of what they were and what purpose they served and such. And apparently it was, it was very helpful for her. She, she definitely appreciated the speaker and, and such. But uh, as, as the speaker neared the end of their talk, they, they began to turn the Jewish festivals. It became less of a descriptive conversation, and it began to focus more on the imperative. See, from this, from this speaker's um, point of view, the Jewish festivals were still imperatives for us today as believers. They were still something that we should be following through, and there should be things that we're commanded also to do. So this former congregant of mine asked me my thoughts, asked me thought, my thoughts on it. She asked, um, she asked, are we indeed obligated to keep the Old Testament festivals, and are we sinning then if we don't? So I responded and said, great question, and then I gave her Jason's email address so she could, <laughs> so she could ask him. Now, as many of you will notice, the, this question about the Jewish festivals, it it really strikes at the heart of a bigger question. It really starts at the, strikes at the heart of what is the Christian's relationship to the law, and more specifically, the law of Moses. Or, or even more broadly, it strikes at the question of what's the Christian's relationship with the Old Testament in general. It's interesting. She, she ended with this statement. She ended by saying, I understand this question is obviously not something extremely prevalent in the current evangelical culture, but wanted to know if you have thoughts. I really, really wish that that was accurate. I really wish that that wasn't quite so, re quite so relevant as it is. Unfortunately, it is. This is a question that's incredibly important today in our context it seems, it seems that maybe there's even few questions quite so relevant. We have pastors today who state that Christians ought to be unhitched from the Old Testament. We have pastors who claim that if the Old Testament God doesn't match up with what we see in Jesus Christ, then we can just ignore those passages of Old Testament Scripture. We can just do away with them. We have prominent evangelicals writing books mocking Old Testament law by showing how ridiculous it is to actually try to live out Old Testament expectations, thereby making light of the Old Testament. This is an incredibly relevant question for us as evangelicals today. What is our relationship to the Old Testament? What is our relationship to the law? And then how, how are we going to give an account of that to our culture when our culture comes and asks us, what do we do with our Old Testament? This is incredibly relevant. So today, we're going to take some time to look at the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament law. We'll kind of break this talk down into three major points. We'll look at, number one, the freedom from the law. Number two, the failure of the law. And then finally, number three, the function of the law. We'll be reading today out of Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 25. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up and we'll read. Again, that's Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 25. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. 
Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put, into, it was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you not just, not, not just for your New Testament, not, not, not even just the red letters, but Father, we thank you for all of your word. We thank you for the Old Testament that you continue to use, that you continue to speak to us through, that you continue to show us your glory through. Father, you are mighty. God, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we, as we sit in this text of Galatians, Father, that you would speak to us in a fresh way, God, and that our hearts would be overcome with a love and an awe for you. God, you are glorious. We pray all this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Our passage this morning then begins in the midst of Paul's letter to the Galatian believers addressing the Judaizers. The Judaizers, this is a group that we've been speaking about for the past few weeks. The Judaizers were a group of Jewish Christians who had followed up behind Paul's missionary efforts, attempting to correct for his theology. They rightly advocated for faith in Christ. They also believed that we're saved by faith. However, to that, they added the requirements, they added requirements, these new Christians, that they should be obedient to the law of Moses given to Israel after their departure out of Egypt, right? So, so these laws would include things like um, would include things like how to dress and how to eat and, and how to maintain oneself properly and things like that. They argued that obedience to the law was essential for the Galatian believers' salvation. Now, Paul wrote the epistle to the, to the Galatians to give a fuller explanation, both against the Judaizers, but also to help the Galatian believers understand where they fit in their relationship to the rest of biblical history. Because biblical history is a story, right? In fact, it's not just a story, it's the story. And Paul wants the Galatians to understand where they fit into the story of God and what he's been doing throughout history. 
Pastor Jason, last week, looked at the first 14 verses of Galatians 3, and we saw in that passage that Abraham kind of served as an example for the Galatians and for us of salvation by faith. Our passage this morning then continues in that strain of thought. Again, looking at Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has already been duly established, so it is in this case. Paul here talks about a covenant. What exactly is a covenant? Most of us don't use the, the, the term covenant in our daily routine. If we go to a wedding, if we go to a wedding service, we'll hear the word covenant, but that's about it, right? A covenant is a mutually binding relationship between two parties. It's usually, uh, it usually includes defined mutual obligations and expectations between these parties. It was binding. It was binding between them. In other words, in other words, it's not simply that simply something that we would back out of because we would say, "Oh, whoops, that's what you meant," or mm, "I take it back. My feelings have changed on this. I don't know that I really want to be bound in this kind of covenant." You can't say that in a covenant. It is a mutually binding thing. Paul's whole argument here in this passage is built then on covenants. We have the covenant with Abraham, where God entered into relationship with Abraham back in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 12, right? And where God bound himself to him. He entered into relationship and made significant promises to Abraham. And then as we see in verse 16 in our passage today, Paul states, and the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Not just to Abraham, but to Abraham and his seed. Paul notes that the ultimate recipient, the ultimate recipient of the promise then is Jesus. Jesus is that promised seed that Abraham had longed for, that he had waited for. Now, through Jesus, the Galatians and all Christians can enter into those blessings of the Abrahamic covenant through faith in Christ, as we see back in verse 14 that Jason spoke about last week. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. Now, the Judaizers largely believed this too. Again, the Judaizers didn't really disagree with faith in Christ. They said, yes, that can happen as long as you continue to follow the law of Moses, right? You see, the Judaizers put the covenant of Moses on par with the covenant of Abraham. They actually bound the two together, making them self-interpreting. We understand Abraham through Moses, and we understand Moses through Abraham. They, they, They collapsed the distinction between those two covenants, even to the degree that some Jewish tradition would later on say that Moses, or that Abraham had actually fulfilled the law of Moses, even though he far preceded the law of Moses. Paul turns this on its head in verse 25. Verse 25, he states, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. He states that the believers are no longer under the authority of the law of Moses, the Mosaic law. In fact, he states this not just in this passage, but he says it in other passages as well. For instance, 
Romans chapter 7, verse 6, he says, But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we might serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Or Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, where he writes, By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. Or this passage isn't written by Paul, but Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete is aging and will soon disappear. So Paul is consistent when he says that we are free. We are free from the law, from the law of Moses. And many of you, many of you already recognize this today. At least you recognize it in your actions, right? How how, how many of you celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles back in September? It was a big celebration. You guys missed it? You guys are missing out. How, how many of you, when you got up to, uh, to, to get dressed this morning to come to church, made sure to put on a garment with, uh, with, with tassels hung from the four corners? I don't see too many tassels out there. Maybe on shoes, but outside of that, I don't see too many tassels. But that, that, was, a, that was a law in the law of Moses. No, you guys aren't following that one? Well, how about this one? How, how many of you have had bacon in recent history? No, you, yeah, I, I had bacon yesterday, and it was amazing. It was spectacular. No, of course not. Of, of co- we, we are free from the law of Moses, so we can go out and we can eat bacon. Praise God. That's amazing. <laughs> I think there are a few things quite so holy as eating bacon. So the application for this morning is go home and eat some bacon, right? <laughs> Best sermon ever. How, when have you gotten to hear that? So Paul argues here that Abraham's covenant should not be interpreted through Moses. The two are separate. The two are separate things. And Abraham's seed, apart from Moses, it's through him and through faith in him that we find our salvation, that we find our blessing, separate from Moses. Well, then all of this raises the question, why aren't we under the law of Moses? Why? Why why, why did this happen? Why aren't we under the law of Moses anymore? Why can we eat bacon now? Was there a failure in the law? Paul tackles this question, why aren't we under the Mosaic law, with five reasons in our passage. There are five things that he brings up. The first reason takes us back to verse 15 that we already looked at and the human analogy that he gives us there. Even we, sinful people, don't change a covenant once it's been ratified. Once it's been set, we don't change it. Or if we do, we at least recognize that we're doing something wrong and maybe maybe feel a little bit guilty about it. So if even we can recognize the wrong in that, how much more so God, how much more so will he be confident? How much more will will, will he hold through and continue on with what he has promised? The promises made by God to Abraham are permanent and unconditional. They will be fulfilled. The second reason comes out of verse 17, where Paul argues that these permanent and unconditional promises came 430 years prior to the law, right? What the Judaizers are attempting to collapse into one thing, history itself separates into two separate things. The Abrahamic Abrahamic covenant existed independent of Moses, and people like Abraham were getting justified well before Moses ever came along. History itself separates these two things. 
The third reason comes out of verse 18, where Paul contrasts the nature of the two things. Abraham's promises were viewed as a gracious gift. They were viewed as a gracious gift. If this gracious gift came as the result of doing the law, then it's no longer a gift. If I earn something, then it's not a gift for me anymore. If you go into work tomorrow and they say, hey, look, we got you a gift. Here's your paycheck. That they, they, they've, they've seriously misunderstood what a gift is. If you've earned it, it's not a gift, right? The fourth reason comes out of verse 19. It's, there was a planned obsolescence in the, in the law, a planned obsolescence. Now, as consumers, we get very frustrated about planned obsolescence. That, that's when your phone starts slowing down on you, even though it was fast and, as fast as could be two years ago, because they actually built into this phone that they wanted to slow down at a certain point, because they want you to buy a new phone, right? Or, or when your printer stops working, even though there's still ink in the cartridge, because there's a chip telling it to stop working. It's not enough printers, they, it's not enough prints, they want you to buy more, right? So as consumers, planned obsolescence is really frustrating. However, when it comes to the law, planned obsolescence is a great thing. The law was only ever intended to be temporary until the seed comes. It wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be a permanent thing. Again, verse 16 told us who that seed was. He was Jesus. So now the age of the law has come to an end. And then Paul gives a fifth reason in verses 19 to 20. There he argues that the law was the product of many parties and through mediation with angels and with Moses between God and the Israelites ultimately. But that's not what we see when we look at the covenant with Abraham. Rather, the covenant with Abraham was between God and Abraham. And that, again, puts Abraham's covenant into a unique position, superseding that of Moses. But do all of these reasons, then, lead to the conclusion that the law was bad? Was the law bad? No, of course not. Even here in our passage, Paul states that the law wasn't bad. And in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, he states, So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. And in 1 Timothy 1, chapter 8, he states, We know that the law is good. Over and over again, Paul is consistent in affirming that the law was a good thing. So the law of Moses is good, but it was intended for a particular people in a particular place at a particular time. And it was not intended to be universal and permanent rule over God's people across time. And again, we see this in the example of Abraham, right? The law had done what it had intended to do, but that wasn't ultimately enough. That's the problem. That's the failure. It did what it was supposed to do, but it just wasn't enough. It reached its intended goal, and now it was necessary to hand off the baton, but the Judaizers continued to try to employ it and to try to force it upon others. Um, New Testament scholar Scott McKnight states that the Judaizers were attempting to live a B.C. lifestyle in an A.D. world. I think that's right. They, they misjudged what time it was. It's like, it's like if you go out of your house in January wearing shorts and a t-shirt. You, you, you didn't look at the calendar, right? There's a problem. You're going to die. It's cold outside, right? That's what happens when you misjudge when it is. Um, be like a college student. Uh, it would be like a college student wanting to do something um, retro and, and exciting. And so, so they go and get a typewriter, and they begin doing all of, their, all of their papers for their classes on a typewriter. But their grades begin to go down. 
And finally, they realize the reason. They don't know how to spell. And there's no spell check on a typewriter, right? It, it, it's not underlining everything in red for them. Now, is the problem, is the, problem the typewriter? No, of course not. The problem is not the typewriter. The problem is that they're living, they're living in a new era, and they're expecting the typewriter to do something it was never intended to do. Thus, with the coming of the true seed, we now have a new location, a new era, similar to Abraham, who is a clear example of justification by faith, again, apart from the law. Well, then why the law at all? Why, why do we even have the law? If the law was good and holy, then what purpose or function did it ultimately serve? Paul gives us our answer in verse 19. There he states, and what was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions, because of transgressions. The law functioned as something like a mirror with a big, bright daytime fluorescent light that shows you every blemish you didn't want to know that you had. That's what the law did. The law showed them the gravity of their sinfulness. It showed them who they were. And not only did the law reveal their sin, but it even went so far as to increase sin. Paul says similarly in Romans 5.20 that the law came to increase trespass. The law enticed and it exacerbated sin that was already present in the heart until it gave birth. St. Augustine, he said something similar in his famous book, The Confessions. He noted that um, he, he, stole, he stole pears when he was young as a youth, and he did it not because he was hungry, not because there was anything particularly alluring about the pears. Rather, he did it simply because he recognized it was wrong, and he enjoyed the gravity and the depths of the wrongness of that. He wrote... He wrote this, he wrote, it was foul and I loved it. I loved my own undoing. The effect of the law then is that it brought ancient Israel to a place of angst, recognizing the gravity of their sin and the hopelessness of their situation. Paul illustrates this function with two images. The first comes out of verse 23. He writes, Before this faith came, we were held prisoner by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. The description of being locked up and held prisoner is the same type of language that's used of military guards that would put someone under lock to help actually protect them. The second image is found in verse 24. The NIV reads, So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. Now, where the NIV reads, put in charge, the Greek actually says, paedagogos, paedagogos. That's a, that's a Greek expression for a guardian in the ancient world. This was a position typically filled by a slave who would supervise children on the behalf of, uh, on the, behalf of the parents. All right, so, so there are a number of things these two images have in common. They, they both point to the benefit of the individual being under the law. So this was for a good thing. They both point to a restriction of freedom of that person who is under the law. And they are both temporary. But we see this especially in the second illustration. The guardian, the guardian is always pointing forward to something beyond itself. The guardian doesn't represent freedom, but the guardian points to freedom. The guardian points us to Christ. So Paul argues in our passage this morning that we are not under the authority of the law but that's not the same as saying we should be unhitched 
from the Old Testament that drastically overstates the case. Ignoring the Old Testament would be like ignoring two-thirds of everything, everything my wife told me, right? Not only would I not understand that one-third if I ignored everything else, but I'd also be in a lot of trouble, right? I, I actually try to listen to everything my wife tells me, and I still often misunderstand. Imagine if I just ignored two-thirds. All of the Old Testament continues to play a significant role for Christians in showing us our sin, in revealing the beauty and the glory of our Lord, and in guiding us in how we should live. Notice that even in our passage this morning, and even in the whole of Galatians, how dependent Paul is on the Old Testament, right? He's not saying, ah, we can just ignore this and go and think what, do whatever. That's not what he's arguing. He's still completely dependent upon the Old Testament, Rather, we should hitch ourselves to the Old Testament all the more. Let's have Bible studies on Leviticus. Let's, uh, let's memorize large swaths of Deuteronomy. Let's do our, da- our daily devotions in the book of Numbers. We need to be hitched more to the Old Testament and to the law. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and yes, even training in righteousness even training in righteousness. How then? How then is the law useful for training in righteousness? Well, going back to Paul's illustration of the guardian, just because we are no longer under the rule of the guardian doesn't mean that we can ignore everything that we learned while we were under those rules, right? My, my two youngest children, one of our rules is they aren't allowed to cross the street by themselves. But I'm praying and hoping that at some point they'll be mature enough to cross the street by themselves, right? I really hope that there will be, there'll come a day when I don't have to hold their hands as we're crossing the street anymore. So does that mean they can just throw away that rule that we had as, as they were young and ignore everything that I taught them? No, of course not. My hope, my hope is that they'll see the principle behind that rule, right? My hope is that as they cross the street as, um, as young adults, um, young and responsible adults, that they'll actually consider the principle behind the rule, that they'll use caution when crossing the street, that they'll look both ways, that they maybe won't play in the middle of the road. I, don't, I, don't, I mean, they're adults, so I don't know if they're playing in the middle of the road anyways, but you get the point. My hope is that they'll still leave the rule behind, but continue to take that principle with them. Though we are not under the form of the law, the lawgiver was good. The lawgiver is good. And the law was always reflective of his righteousness. And we are called to continue to walk out that righteousness. So we do so by living out the principles and patterns and moral norms that we see in that law, especially as we are given in the example of Christ. However, this still doesn't really answer the problem of our passage, does it? This doesn't ultimately get to the heart of the problem. The problem was never really about the law in the first place, was it? The law, the law wasn't the problem. The problem was sin. It was our sin. And while the Jews viewed the law of Moses as the answer to the problem, Paul has shown here that they were wrong. That's a misunderstanding of the law and that that was never really intended to be the solution to the problem. The law was impotent to do the work that truly needed to happen. Our world today, our world today answers the problem of the, answers our problem by saying things like, You just need to work harder, or you need to get more education, or you need to be more moral, however however we define morality. 
You need to end up, you need to be a better you, right? That's how we answer the problem in our world today. But that still isn't the answer either. Rather, our sin will continue to take advantage of all those things and continue to grow and fester like a rot that's just under the surface of a pristine facade. That's what happens when we continue to ignore the real problem. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, wrote this poem. He said, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Better, far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. That's, that's the answer. The problem is the futility of our flesh. And the only answer ultimately is the gospel. The answer is the gospel. Morality can't provide life. Morality can't make righteous. Morality can't provide freedom. Morality can't give us our inheritance. Only Christ. Only Christ. He is our answer. Only Christ can provide the heart procedure that we need. Only grace can be the balm of our ruined souls. Only faith in him can make us whole. Only faith in him and his death and resurrection only faith in him. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray that we would continue to be captivated by your beauty, God, whether it's in the Old Testament, whether it's in the law, whether it's in the New Testament, God, that we would be radically transformed by it, God, that we would be empowered by the gospel, by what your Son has done, by the Spirit at work in us, Father, to go out and to live lives that glorify you, O God, that accord to what we have seen in your Old Testament, Father, that match the way your Son has lived, Father, that are led by the leadings of the Spirit. Father, you are good. Lord, pray all this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. This morning, our benediction will come out of the book of Jude, verses 24 to 25. It's written there. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, glory, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Have a good morning.